Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics. This week we're exploring the state of public opinion in Russia. How popular is Putin? And indeed, how can we measure people's attitudes in authoritarian settings at all? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. It almost goes without saying that public opinion matters in a democracy where leaders can be scrutinised in the free press and held accountable at free and fair elections. But public attitudes matter in authoritarian contexts too, as illustrated by how careful Russia's President Vladimir Putin is being at the moment to control the media narrative around his war in Ukraine. So what role does public opinion play in autocracies? Can we accurately measure public opinion in such settings? And what does the evidence suggest about the state of public opinion in Russia today? All of these questions are explored in a recent working paper published by the Varieties of Democracy Institute and summarised on the Washington Post's Monkey Cage blog. One of the authors of those pieces is Katerina Tetichnaya, who is lecturer in comparative politics here in the UCL Department of Political Science. And I'm delighted to say that she joins me now. Long-standing listeners will recognise Katerina from a previous episode of Uncovering Politics, where we discussed the Russian dissident Alexei Navalny and the future of Russian politics. Katerina, welcome back to UCL Uncovering Politics. And as I said in the intro, The Russian state is clearly investing a huge amount of effort into bolstering support for the invasion and for Putin at the moment. So why does public opinion matter in an autocracy, given the absence of of free and fair elections? Right. Well, first of all, Alan, thank you very much for having me and for the opportunity to discuss these questions together. So as as you very rightly said in the introduction, we know very well that public opinion does not constrain authoritarian leaders the way it constrains leaders in democratic regimes. Yet at the same time, authoritarian leaders do care about the levels of popular support they enjoy. And we know this to be the case, as you said, because they invest a lot of time and effort trying to shape public opinion and control the narrative, either by convincing the masses that they are competent and and credible, or indeed by stifling mass public criticism of their regime. So there is propaganda and repression in these regimes going hand in hand. We also know that governments like uh, the one in Russia invest a lot of time and effort serving people. I think this, this is a nice characteristic to share with, with our listeners. Indeed, we know that the Kremlin has been for many years polling firm's number one client in Russia. So we have, you know, weekly opinion polls with nationally representative samples and even, you know, regionally representative surveys that are fielded in, in close intervals so that the, the, the Kremlin knows A, whether the the authorities are liked or not, and B, what is the unrest potential in each region? These are the two questions always repeated. And of course, you know, uh, as long as opinion polls suggest that the leader is popular, they are being widely publicized, right? So it would not be an exaggeration to suggest that governments like like the contemporary, you know, that in, in contemporary Russia use their approval ratings in order to justify their rule. Now, a question is, why do autocrats really care about about their approval ratings? Well, we know from comparative scholarship that 
more popular authoritarian governments do indeed tend to last longer in office. And there is good reason for this. Sometimes, um, you know, citizens will look at a leader's popularity as a sign that the leader is competent, that it is, you know, we're doing a good job in office or that it even deserves approval. And I often say that we can think of popular support for authoritarian leaders as this very important bargaining chip or a very important negotiating tool that leaders use in order to signal to the people at home that they're doing a good job, that they can use in order to keep elites uh, loyal to the regime, but also to signal to international audiences that their regime, despite abuses, despite repression, still enjoys some sort of legitimacy. And, and this is the case, you know, not just for the Russian government, but for authoritarian governments worldwide. So that's interesting, that, that very last point. Is it the same for all authoritarian governments? I, mean, is, I, I wonder if there's a kind of trade-off between the degree to which you rely on public support and the degree to which you rely on repression. And, and if you're in, willing to engage in sharper forms of repression, then that means you can be less reliant on public support. Or, or is it not like that? Yeah, so this is an interesting question. I think even leaders that use repression, they do so in order to stifle expressions of opposition. So they are still, they do in their own way care about public opinion and they just want to make sure that these expressions of discontent do not become public knowledge. Now, we know that in recent years, and there's been a, a fantastic book that has been published earlier this spring by Sergei Guriev and Daniel Trisman, that over time, dictators based on fear have been to some extent replaced by dictators based on, on spin, right? Dictators who try more and more to convince the masses that they're popular, that they're competent, and that they're doing a good job in office. So actively trying to generate support as opposed to force the population into submission. And we know this to be the case because indeed in recent years, the costs of brutal repression have, have increased. Repression always increases dictators' reliance on, on the military, on, on the police apparatus. It's also more likely to cause a backlash, both domestically but also internationally. And we also know that with the rise of the of the human rights regime and you know with the interconnectedness in, in our world, repression is becoming increasingly tricky. But but you're absolutely right. There are military dictatorships that, as you say, have traditionally relied on, on fear and repression as opposed to this, you know, massive propaganda apparatus that, that we see in contemporary autocracies. And of course it should be noted that there is a, a complementary relationship between propaganda and repression, even with who claim to be popular do not hesitate to use brutal force and repression against their populations when expressions of discontent become public knowledge. And we've seen this to be the case in Russia in recent months as well. And what do we learn from the experience of someone like Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus in recent years, who's been the subject of very large protests, seems, to, seems at least on the surface, to be very unpopular? but nevertheless has been able to maintain his grip upon that country. 
Yeah, but Lukashenko exactly is, is one example of, of leaders who faced with domestic opposition have ha- has had to increase, you know, investments in, in repression. Protests in, in Belarus were met with, with extreme force and, and violence by the regime. We know that there are political prisoners currently in the country and, and the opposition ha- has not been able to, to regroup since since the most recent election. So there, there is also always, as I said, this you know, complementary and, and, you know, substitution relationship between propaganda and repression in these regimes. Repression can be used, and it is used when, you know, propaganda fails to convince the masses that the leader is popular, or indeed, when the balance of public opinion shifts, and, and those in the minority, or those opposition forces, uh, do take to the streets and make their discontent publicly you known. Okay, so we know that public opinion matters in authoritarian contexts. I've already hinted that it may be quite difficult, though, to measure that public opinion, which is the core focus of your research. So do you want to tell us a bit about what are the challenges to measuring public opinion in these sorts of settings compared with the sorts of democratic settings that perhaps we're more used to seeing this research done in? Yes, of course. L- let me just co- start by saying that you're absolutely right in saying that we're more, more used to seeing research on public opinion done in democracies. And I think this reflects two interconnected facts. The first, as you say, are challenges with measuring public opinion authoritarian regimes. And the second is perhaps a scholarly consensus that has defined authoritarian politics for many decades in the past that perhaps public opinion is immaterial in in these regimes. So scholars of authoritarian politics would traditionally focus on, you know, uh, ruling coalitions and and the elites and and those in, in the palace or, you know, in the Kremlin, because Precisely, the, the the consensus was that public opinion does not matter, mass uprisings are, are, are rare, and if people say that they support autocrats, then they're lying, right? So this is this is the tradition of sort of criminal criminology, if I can say it, as as a way of studying Soviet politics as it was up to nineteen ninety one, and the idea yeah. that you just need to understand what's happening within in those inside those walls in order to understand the future. Absolutely, Alan. And I would say it's not just a Russian-specific story. I think this is, you know, this this elite-driven paradigm has has shaped the study of authoritarian politics in a comparative setting, as well. And again, this reflects methodological concerns, but but it also reflects a deeper understanding of of autocracies and and how they function. So the challenges of studying public opinion in these settings. Yes. So as you hinted, some some of these challenges are shared with, you know, studies of public opinion in democracies. For example, how do we reach a national representative sample? How do we make sure that non-respondents do not differ from survey respondents, etc.? Are, are, I think, concerns that we share with colleagues who study uh, public opinion in democratic settings. However, other concerns tend to be exaggerated or, you know, a bit, a bit more prevalent, greatly more prevalent in, in authoritarian settings. So as I already mentioned, the first question has to do with who actually responds to these surveys, right? We know, for example, that individuals with poorly framed opinions or those who are fearful of the regime and who are not confident about the confidentiality of their survey responses may be less likely to participate in surveys than others, right? And there's a fear of of political reprisals, fear of 
you know, lack of anonymity is, is indeed very specific to authoritarian settings. Now, another question concerns individuals' propensity to provide truthful responses to sensitive items in an authoritarian context. And, you know, think about questions about presidential approval. I should say that, you know, desirability bias is, is not unique in, in authoritarian settings either. So in democracies, we know that people tend to exhibit social desirability bias. So falsify their true attitudes uh, because they want to give the socially acceptable opinion and indeed methods to elicit truthful responses to sensitive items, such as list experiments come to us from democracies where scholars you know, for years grappled with questions of how to study racial attitudes, how to study, you know, sensitive items. Um, we also know that, you know, uh, in the lead up to Trump's election, that during the first presidential election, there was sensitivity bias and, and some respondents would indeed underreport their support for Trump just because it was considered as a, um, an undesirable attitude to report. Now, desirability bias, the kind of I described existing in autocracy as well. It, it, part of it is indeed social. Individuals want to provide the socially acceptable view, but it is also political in nature, right? So individuals are, are concerned not just about providing the socially acceptable view, but also the correct political opinion because they're concerned not about social repercussions, but about political punishment. And again, this hinges on, on a belief that the surveys may not be anonymous, responses may be monitored, the state may be sponsoring surveys, and that makes people more concerned about providing a response that goes counter is critical of the authorities. And finally, a concern that has become more pronounced and more acute in the last few months as survey polling firms in Russia started interviewing people about the war, a concern has to do about the, the framing of the of survey questions and, and the way these questions are, are formulated, right? We know that the the, the wording of, of questions, especially sensitive questions, is, is greatly consequential. And we also know that people who are perhaps less politically engaged or those who do not have crystallized opinions, you know, more susceptible to wording changes in how important questions are asked. So put together, we have a very difficult situation to navigate, yet one that is, of course, possible to navigate. Mm. So the question, the next question then is how? how? How do you navigate this? And one technique that you mentioned there is what's called list experiments. And I guess quite a few listeners won't be familiar with what a list experiment is. So do you want to just explain that first? And then perhaps we will explore a range of techniques as well. So, yes, I should say that, you know, I listed three three concerns and, and there's ways around all of these concerns. So, mm. you know, concern number one, how respondents differ from non-respondents. One way to address this question is by indeed collecting information about those non-respondents, right? Their gender, their age, their residence. We can collect information about their political views, but it can be sometimes inferred from context. So that will give us a good understanding of, you know, different baseline differences between survey respondents and non-respondents. So does that so, mean literally that if you're a survey worker going around knocking on people's doors, then when someone replies to the knock on the door and says, no, I don't want to take part, then you record, are they man or woman? How old are they roughly? That kind of thing. 
Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And you can also record the reasons for non-participation, right? Is it because somebody does not have time? Is it because people are, you know, truthful in expressing concerns about anonymity, etc.? So you can do that face to face. And if, you know, th this is information available in, in online panels by individuals who have opted in, that that's another way to just, you know, establish baseline differences between these two groups of individuals. So there's ways around that. Now, the, the second concern that, that, that I think is, is indeed very prevalent in, in authoritarian settings has to do with the way people uh, respond to sensitive items, right? And, and again, here is also question, political questions, such as questions about approval. And here there's a few things that researchers can control for or can check for. For example, the rate of non-response answers such as, I don't know, I refuse to answer when individuals are asked about presidential approval, say, which is our working example, and indeed checking how those non-responses correlate uh, or relate with the respondent characteristics. So we know from research in other contexts, such as Africa and, and East Asia, that more educated respondents, wealthier groups tend to exhibit greater desirability bias just because they're more sensitive to the implications that the socially undesirable response could have. So we could check, you know, to what extent do we find similar patterns in any survey that, that we filled. And, and this is a relatively inexpensive way to check for non-response in the data. There are also methods, indirect methods, to elicit, you know, truthful responses to survey items. And I mentioned least experiments, which is something we also filled it during our, our study. So just to give you an idea of how list experiments work, in case that's, that's of interest. So what usually happens, we have, um, you know, ideally a nationally representative sample of respondents that we randomly split into two groups. Because of random assignment to a control and a, and a treatment group, we assume that these groups are otherwise identical, right? And again, let's go back to the presidential approval item. Imagine that we provide respondents in their in the control group a list of three politicians, right? And respondents in the treatment group, the same list of three figures of th the three politicians, plus the sensitive item, the sensitive politician. In this case, for us who study Russian politics, it would be President Vladimir Putin, right? So control group sees three items, uh, treatment group sees the list of four items. Now, respondents in each of these two groups, the treatment and the control, are asked how many, but not which politicians they, they support. So we don't ask them for their names, for the names of the politicians, we just tell them like from, z from zero to three, how many of these politicians do you support? Because respondents only give us a number, so the number of how many politicians they support, it is, you know, in generally impossible to determine whether are there any individual from those in the in the treatment group actually supports pres President Putin. In the aggregate, however, so if we compare answers to these two groups, support for the sensitive items, so support for Vladimir Putin, can be estimated as the difference between the mean response from responses in the treatment and the control groups. And as I said earlier, random assignments as random assignments to, to these two groups and ensures that any differences between them are attributed to the presence of the of the sensitive item, not to any respondent characteristics such as age or gender or education. 
Great. Wonderful description of a list experiment there. And um, so listeners sometimes find it a bit confusing when we use this language of treatment and control, because, you know, there's no, no one's being given any medicine here. No, no, no one's being <laughs> no. given a kind of a, a treatment. But of course, this is just the language that first was used in medical trials when people were being treated with some kind of drug. And we use the same kind of language to talk about when we're subjecting people to a particular condition and we see what effect that has upon outcomes. So here the treatment group is is the group treated, in quotation marks, with a sensitive item, with that extra information. And I spoke about Putin, but of course, colleagues have tested, you know, support for the war in recent months and, and a wealth of other sensitive issues. Okay, great. So I'm really tempted to go straight on to finding out what you actually found out when you fielded that question. But before we get there, you mentioned a third challenge associated with conducting surveys in these contexts to do with the framing of the question. So do you want quickly to say how you overcome that challenge before we move on? Yeah, I think that this challenge about survey question wording is is more prevalent when we don't design surveys ourselves, but rely on surveys that polling firms have have designed. I think you know it is important to be aware of of such differences, compare and contrast how small changes in wordings impact responses, who is more likely to be affected by them, so which subgroups in in the population tend to change their opinions. And of course, when when academics design their own surveys, there's always pre-testing that takes place and and then the final wording is formalized. Okay, so let's go on to explore the results of your analysis. So you've particularly focused on public opinion towards President Putin and Putin's popularity. Firstly, what exactly have you sought to find out about public opinion uh, towards Putin? And then second, what have you actually found out? So a research with Noah Backley, Cal Markard and John Rader asked a, a, a very simple question, really. And it, it, it had more to do with the origins of presidential approval. So quite simply, we asked whether perceptions of an autocrat's popularity affect their levels of support. You know, we know that propaganda matters to some extent in these regimes. We know that, you know, repression matters going back to our earlier discussion. But how about people's beliefs about how popular the, the dictator is and how many people around them uh, support the authorities? Do they also shape people's support for, for incumbents? To test this expectation, you know, the, the, this question, we, we took advantage of a, of a really interesting circumstance. So in recent years, and, and when I say in recent years, I always refer to the period before the war when, when these surveys were, were filled it, we saw that President Putin's approval declined to around 60% of the electorate. Now, that was objectively high, but comparatively low compared to the popularity Vladimir Putin enjoyed in the past, which was around, you know, 85, 89% in 2018 and 2015. And, you know, parenthesis, presidential approval has also increased in recent months uh, following the invasion. So we took advantage of, of this fact, you know, approval has declined, but it's still objectively high, to, to word questions in, in ways that frame presidential approval as either in a negative or in a positive light without using deception. That was very important uh, for the purposes of our work. Now, we spoke about least experiments, but for this task, we used a different experimental method 
that we combined with the list experiment called a framing experiment. So here we had three groups. Again, respondents randomly split into, into these groups and everyone was asked the same question. Those in the control group just took the survey and just answered whether they approve of, of the president or not. Another group first read a short statement saying that presidential popularity was relatively high and stable, right? And then a third group was told that presidential approval was, was relatively low and declining. And so we try to frame, we try to manipulate what people think about presidential approval in an effort to manipulate their perceptions of, of approval and popularity. Now, having presented respondents with these the three different scenarios, we compared how much each of these two experimental groups of respondents provided with negative and positive information about presidential approval, actually approve of the president, compared to those in the control who were told absolutely nothing about recent levels of support that Putin enjoys. Now, what we found was very interesting and, and indeed something we, we did not necessarily anticipate to such an extent when we were fielding this service. And I should say these are, um, you know, this is a series of public opinion surveys that we fielded between 2020 and 2001. The last survey was in the field in, in September, so a few months before Russia invaded Ukraine. So what we find is that telling people that the Russian president enjoys stable and, and high support has, has no effect on support for the president in any of these four experiments that we ran. However, As compared to the control group to, where you don't... Right, exactly, absolutely. However, people told that presidential approval was low and declining, reported lower support for the president than those people in the control group. And those differences were actually quite large, anything between 6 and 11 percentage points. So, so a striking result. We then used a list experiment that, that we already discussed to investigate whether, you know, these results reflect sincere changes in how people feel or rather people just, just engaged in, in, in preference falsification. And indeed, what we found was that these changes, changes in people's preferences, were in fact sincere. Telling people that presidential approval has been in decline makes respondents less likely to support the president genuinely less likely to support the president, not just less likely to say that they supported the president, falsifying their preferences. So, you know, all in all, these findings do suggest that to some extent, Putin's support is based on perceptions that Putin is popular. But I think this is bad news for the authorities because without this perception, support and approval will fade. Yeah. So how exactly should we interpret these findings? So, so I guess one reason you might think that people would answer in a way that is dependent upon their perceptions of wider public opinion is that they just want to be part of the crowd. They don't want to stand out because in an authoritarian context, standing out from the crowd can be quite dangerous. But I think what you're suggesting is that it's more than that. It's not just that they're hiding their true preference in order to be part of the crowd, but actually their true preference is being shaped by what they understand about wider public opinion. So wh why would that be the case? And what does that imply about the underlying dynamics? Yes, thank you. Thank you for this question. And you're, you're absolutely correct in your interpretation of the results. I guess what the findings suggest is that social conformity or the need to get along with the popular view or the dominant view in society helps sustain authoritarian rule. 
Yeah, And this is not uh, just about the fear of repression. Indeed, we know that, you know, the desire to get along, social conformity, also helps account for much of the rally around the flag effects we see in times of war. Henry Hale, for example, has recently published a paper showing that, you know, social conformity was also you know, part of the picture for why people rallied so much around the president after the annexation of Crimea. So I think the the, the research suggests that perhaps in addition to political desirability bias, social desirability bias is also a concern in, in authoritarian settings. And I guess it, it explains why autocrats invest so much time and effort to influence perceptions of, of their approval, be it through propaganda, you know, patriotic lessons in school, or indeed manipulated wordings in, in polls. They, they all aim to boost the regime's popularity by sustaining this picture of strength, invincibility, and, and genuine support. At the same time, the findings suggest that support may be more fragile than we had thought in the past. So public expressions of discontent, such as uh, protest or local expressions of, uh, you know, opposition to the regime or opposition to regime strategies such as the war may encourage, you know, a large share of the population to update their beliefs about the, the, the authorities. In turn, you know, in turn, a small change in support could set off a larger loss of support is, is what our findings imply. Mm-hmm. So there's potentially a kind of bubble of support that people ride so long as they think that it exists and is going to continue existing. But if that appears to be bursting, then suddenly there can be a a very dramatic change in Mm -hmm. uh, levels of public support. Fascinating. So this is an ongoing research project and you're continuing to explore these issues. As you mentioned there, the data on public opinion that you have so far comes from 2020-2021, so before the the recent war. What are your future plans for research and what are the kinds of questions that you're going to be delving into further through that? Yes, so I should say obviously the, the, the war has, has created a very difficult situation for researchers interested in going into the field, you know, launching their own surveys, and you know, serving public opinion on, on a range of issues. And there's the, there's a lot of uncertainty right now about any project's ability to continue as, as before. I think for me personally and, and, and for research teams around the world, it is extremely interesting to investigate how the war has you know, exacerbated concerns with either social or political desirability bias. We know that a question asked around the world, for example, is to what extent people continue to support the authorities and to what extent ordinary Russians support the war effort. For ongoing work that that um, we now have on, at, at the department that studies, you know, Russians' attitudes towards the authorities, a question is whether the war has challenged the legitimacy of the law. It has challenged the legitimacy of those in power. And those are questions we would very much like to start studying as soon as possible, you know, taking into account the, the new conditions that the war has created. We have the tools to do so. And I think, you know, survey companies are able to provide assurances about security and, you know, respondents 
you know, anonymity, et cetera. But, but of course, it is a very fluid environment and mm. changing environment. Yeah, and, and, and you describe that work as interesting, but it's also incredibly important, important for shaping uh, policymaking in many capital cities around the globe. Final question then, before we end. I started off by saying that we're exploring here public attitudes towards Putin. What can we say in summing up? What do we know about public opinion towards Vladimir Putin in Russia today? So we know that for many years, Vladimir Putin was genuinely popular, right? List experiments pointed to that. Other, you know, techniques for eliciting sensitive responses pointed to that. And, and so that that's that's a fact. We also know that that was the case because, you know, and, and what fueled Putin's approval were, were factors that, you know, fuel incumbent approval in democracy as well. So good economic performance, wars abroad, and, you know, an, an expanding welfare state and, and growing pensions, etc., we also know, however, that as I mentioned in recent years, especially following the annexation of Crimea and, you know, the rally around of the flag effect that saw approval soar to 85, 89% of the electorate, the presidential approval began to decline. There was a range of unpopular reforms in Russia, including the, the, the pension reform of 2018 that tainted the, the government's popularity and, and Putin's personal popularity. In recent months, this has changed. Following the invasion of Ukraine, presidential support con- continued to climb. So comparatively, Putin's approval was around 69% of the electorate in um, in January 2022, so before Russia invaded, and stood at 83% of the electorate last month, which, which is a considerable increase. We know that the authorities invest a lot of time and effort, and we saw, you know, pro-regime rallies happening in Russia in, in the first weeks of the war in order to sustain Putin's popularity. Russia is a personalist regime, and in personalist regimes, what, what happens is that the authorities use the, the leader's approval in order to legitimize the, the, the whole system of government. Right? That makes it extremely fragile as well and it also makes it extremely important to sustain for for the regime at the same time you know i should say that as the war as russia's war in ukraine continues signs of public dissatisfaction about the war and indeed about the president have increasingly begun to to enter the the public's um, consciousness so street protests that were more intense than in the early days of the war, you know, scenes of mother soldiers criticizing the authorities and indeed a sharp rise in food prices coupled with shortages could, you know, to, to a large extent dent and damage Putin's image of, of popularity. You know, as our research research suggests, this in turn could set off a larger loss of support. Well, Katarina, thank you so much for this insight into your research, incredibly important research that has become even more important uh, since you started it. So best of luck for the further rounds of research that you'll be doing. I know many people will be fascinated to see it. We've been discussing the working paper, Endogenous Popularity, How Perceptions of Support Affect the Popularity of Authoritarian Regimes, co-authored by Noah Buckley, Kyle L. Markert, Ora John Reuter, 
and Katerina Tetichnaya, and it's published by the Varieties of Democracy Institute. The same authors have a summary of the paper called How Popular is Putin Really? published on the Washington Post's Monkey Cage blog in April. And you can find all of the details of those publications in the show notes for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing how politicians seek to balance the advice of economic experts with the democratic imperative of maintaining the support of voters. Remember to make sure you don't miss on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Alan Rennick. This episode was researched and produced by James Cleaver. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.